And this morning, it's almost Christmas. I can't even believe that it's almost Christmas. Uh, the, the years just seem to evaporate. It's going to be New Year's and then it's going to be Christmas again. It just seems the way it's going. So this morning, I wanted to break from what we've been doing for the last few weeks and uh, start talking about Christmas, at least in an Advent sort of way, and talk about, well, the gift of the Magi, but maybe in a little bit different context than you're used to hearing that. Last night, Marion and I were talking, and uh, she just happened to mention that Christmas isn't the same anymore. This is the first year that our little guy, our 10-year-old, has not been talking about Santa Claus at all. See, last year, he knew that the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy were not real, but Santa was real. You know, just ask him. This year, not a word about it, so we're figuring somewhere along the line this year, it, uh, it went by the wayside. And uh, so, yeah, just having... Children small enough to be able to just get into that wonder. It's not that he's not excited about Christmas, but there's a different flavor to it this year. And as she was talking, it reminded me of what had happened this morning, which was yesterday morning, when we got the uh, another carpet installer to come in to install the carpet for us. And we got to talking, and he was talking about he has a work van, but he put some seats in there, so it's not totally a work van anymore, because now his grandkids love to jump into those seats and go for rides and he says they just drive around and they laugh and they have the best time and I was telling Marion that was the first time that moment yesterday morning that I just felt this longing for grandkids you know (laughs) I've never felt that before it was the weirdest thing it's like oh yeah that would be so much fun to have little ones again that you can hold and and give back to mom and dad you know See, it's going to be all different this time. And uh, it reminds me of that uh, Bill Cosby bit that he does when he takes his kids over to uh, visit his parents. And their dad's handing out quarters and dollar bills and they're doing all this stuff for the kids. And he says, who are these people? These aren't the people that raised me. These are old people trying to get into heaven. I'm going to be that kind of grandparent. I'm going to be that kind of granddad. But just to have a child around to see... Life in general, but Christmas again through the eyes of a real little one, is something that is so precious. It changes us. And let's face it, a lot of us have depression at the holidays. I was just reading through some of the articles, and depression is widespread among adults at the holiday time. It's really, really difficult. And there was all these lists about what you can do you know, to um, beat the holiday blues and, and do this sort of thing. There was one particularly interesting one where... Uh, This woman says she goes to Vegas (laughs) and she spends time there so then she can kind of recharge and refuel before she gets back to her family because she married into a family that's just hyper Christmas, you know, and she just can't handle it. And so she had all these funny things that she did. She goes, I make myself as useful as humanly possible. He said, you want that platter washed? Gimme, you know, we're out of cinnamon. Where are the car keys? And she's just doing stuff that keeps her useful but connected, you know. But it was interesting, all the different ways that people have of dealing with their holiday blues and depression. And when you think about it, it comes from all over, doesn't it? It comes from this need that we feel or this pressure that we feel to stay up with the commercialism and all the stuff that's going on. Whether we have lack of funds, whether we've lost our job, sometimes it's the overspending that depresses us because we know we're going into debt and that's at the back of our mind. You know, maybe there's a loss of a loved one that was really the identification with Christmas. And now with that person gone, it's so difficult to get back where we think we should be. Family reunions can be 
pressurized and, and difficult as well. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you walk into your parents' home and you're instantly eight years old again. You know, the dynamic just reasserts itself. And all of these, these unresolved issues, but what it really comes down to when you think about it is unmet expectation. That's really where the depression comes from. That's where the difficulty arises. And what is it that we're expecting? What is that expectation that we have about Christmas? What is it we're trying to create? What is it we're trying to recreate? You know? What I was thinking about is that we learned as a child what Christmas is supposed to be. We learned it when we were really little. You know? And when you think about looking at Christmas from a vantage point that's three feet off the ground, everything is just incredible. Imagine a small child here just looking up at the stage and seeing these trees. You know, Everything just looks so big and it looks so shiny and it looks so amazing. Walking through the streets and seeing the lights on the houses and, and the, the mall with all the stuff, and it, it just, it's just kind of mind-blowing. And so as a child, we learned about Christmas and all of that magical belief that we had as kids culturally is really how we have come to view Christmas. And it got imprinted on us. It got imprinted on us emotionally at a very early age. And so here we are, trying to remember Christmas through adult eyes. But we learn through a child's eyes. We learn from three feet off the ground. And now from between five and six feet off the ground, we're trying to get back that same experience. You know? It's as if we learn Christmas as a kid and then we spend the rest of our lives trying to recreate that experience again. But see, it's ironic, I suppose, and it's self-defeating, I suppose, because to try to recreate Christmas through adult eyes is not going to work in terms of the way that we expect it to be. What's really happening is we're trying to recreate the experience of the child. If we could do that, then we could recreate the experience of Christmas. If you have any Christmas memories, think about them. Remember them. Remember what it was like? I literally can remember saying every year that I was going to stay up awake until I saw Santa. And I was looking out the window and I was waiting for the sleigh and I was listening for sounds and every year my body betrayed me and I fell asleep. But I kept trying. I remember the trees that my parents had and I thought that they were beautiful, right? And then you watch these home movies, you know, from the 60s, no less. Artificial trees from the 60s, can you imagine? They were just horrendous. There was one that was just silver bottle brushes that went out, and it was just the most horrible. But I thought they were beautiful as a kid, you know? How am I going to recreate that unless I can go back into that space, go back into that place as a child, lower my viewpoint back down to three feet off the ground so I can see everything that's going on? So what we remember and what we long for is not necessarily so much Christmas. I think at the subconscious level, at the spiritual level and the emotional level, what we long for is that point of view, is that, that way of looking at life from the spirit of a child. So to remember the child is to remember Christmas, to re-experience Christmas as your heart remembers it, you know, means that we must re-experience what Jesus calls Talia. And for those of you who haven't heard my little riff on Talia, Talia is the Aramaic word for child. When Jesus says that you must be like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, the word he uses there is Talia. 
But Talia doesn't just mean child. It also means a domestic slave or a bondservant that was common in first century Palestine. And when you take the traits of the child and you take the traits of the servant and you put them together, you get the fullness of what Jesus is trying to talk about. When we think about the traits of the child, it's that openness, it's that complete vulnerability, it's that complete dependence. It's that ability to just accept things as you see them at face value. Because you don't have a lot of subtext, a lot of stuff to bring into the moment, so you just accept it as it is. And it's wonderful, and it's new, and it's exciting, and it's playful. And then you take the servant, the humility, the submission, the choice, which is the key piece. A child doesn't have a choice to be what he or she is. You're a child. A servant has a choice. Even a slave has a choice. It may be only to serve or die, but it's still a choice. And say it was a good choice, but it's a choice that you have. The choice to be submitted. The choice to be humble. The choice to serve. When you put those two things together, you get the fullness of what Jesus is talking about. As Talia... If we can enter into that space, the attributes of the Beatitudes, literally every day can be Christmas. Every day can have that kind of wonder. Every day can have that kind of excited expectation of something, but still the ability to accept whatever comes. Every day can be Christmas if we could re-enter into this place. So what does that look like? Well, I wanted to do something that I haven't done for several years. I want to read you a story. And just bear with me. It's going to take me about seven minutes to read this story. It's a short, short story. And it's called The Gift of the Magi, and it's by O. Henry. And it was written over a hundred years ago. It's amazing to think that this is over a hundred years ago. This is turn of the 20th century New York, and it follows the uh, escapades of one particular young couple. So just relax for a second. You can even close your eyes if you want to. But just... Let this, song, this story play through like a movie in your mind and see if you can picture it. $1.87. That was all. And 60 cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one or two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with a silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it. $1.87. And the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it. Which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs and sniffles and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the house is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home, a furnished flat at $8 per week. Can you imagine? (laughs) Would you like your rent to be $32 a month for a furnished apartment? Furnished flat at $8 per week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. means it was pretty poor and shabby. In the vestibule below was a letterbox into which no letter would go and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name of Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to $20, though, they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. 
But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with a powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only $1.87 with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. $20 a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only $1.87 to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him, something fine and rare and sterling, something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen a pier glass in an $8 flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Telebeen's slender had mastered the art. Suddenly she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within twenty seconds. Rapidly she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now, there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window someday just to dry and depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket, on went her old brown hat, and with a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Safrone, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Safrone. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Madame. Take your hat off and let's have a sight at the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Well, forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value. The description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took for, from her for it, and she hurried home with the eighty-seven cents. 
With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way to a little prudence and reason. She got out the curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love. I love that line. Which is always a tremendous task, my dear friends, a mammoth task. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at a reflection in the mirror long, carefully, and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to himself, said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look just like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and eighty-seven cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. And then she heard his step on the stairway, down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit of saying little silent prayers about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please, God, make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened, and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only 22. He needed a new overcoat, and he was without gloves. Jim stopped inside the door as immovable as a setter at the scent of quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wiggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she cried, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair, asked Jim laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact, even after the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say it's gone, he said, with an air of almost idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone, too. It's Christmas Eve, boy, be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with sudden serious sweetness. But nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put on the chops, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. For ten seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week or a million a year. What's the difference? A mathematician or a wit could give you the wrong answer. The magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it on the table. Don't make any mistake about me, Dell, he said. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going at first. 
white fingers and nimble, tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the Lord of the Flat. For there lie the combs, the set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoiseshell with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers, but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look with dim eyes and a smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried, Oh, oh, Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell said he, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them for a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now suppose you put the chops on. Imagine that scene for a second. The laughter and the tears. They've got useless presents, but they're more valuable than anything that they could have imagined. O. Henry closes with this. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as these are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest. They are the magi. Have you ever loved someone like that? More than possessions, more than life itself, withholding nothing, with complete abandon, with full extension. Have you ever had that childlike quality of being completely vulnerable and dependent to another person where you would just sacrifice all without a second thought? It's like Christmas every day, isn't it? I remember when I went to my 10th high school reunion. I met a friend who was a a friend of mine from grammar school and through high school, and I hadn't seen him in all that time. And before I knew it, we were actually kneeling down on the floor, and he was laying out pictures of his children. He had daughters at that time. He had three daughters. You know, now he has seven kids, if you can believe it. He had three daughters at the time, and he laid out their pictures, and he was just looking at them, and, and he said, I can't believe how much I love them. I can't believe it. It's like he didn't know that it was possible that he could have this feeling or this outpouring for his children. And I really didn't know what he was talking about at the time, but I do now. 
you know, with my family, with my children, and you feel that there's just nothing that you wouldn't give without hesitation. There's nothing that you would hold. And I think that kind of selfless love is clearest with children. Somehow it just, it just pours out. There's no, nothing coming back. It's just they're there and you love them and you just want to give everything. You know? And if you've never loved or you've never been loved like that, it's hard to believe that such a love really exists. You see, our concept of love is limited by our ability to love, to be loved. Like Jesus, like Della and Jim, like the Magi, their ability to love is what made the love real for them. They understood that it exists. They had experienced its reality because they had been able to just let it go. Who were these Magi that we're talking about? Who were they really? Let's take a look. It's only the Gospel of Matthew that says anything about the Magi, and everything we know about them are right here in Scripture at Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, as was all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This is all we know of the Magi from Scripture. What do we know about them? Well, they're not kings. Scripture doesn't say anything about them being kings, even though we think of them as kings. And there wasn't even three. They had three gifts, but we don't know how many they really were. The Magi in history were a priestly class in the Babylonian, Persian, and Parthian empires that stretched from the 7th century BC all the way into Roman times. They were priests, they were astronomers, they were scientists, and they were elevated to the the level of magistrate, where they were on a council that actually selected kings, so they were kingmakers. So they were both civil authorities and they were also religious leaders. And they were scientists on top of that. They were all of these things. It's supposed by most scholars that Daniel was actually a magi as he was in exile in Babylon and he was elevated to this level because they were also interpreters of dreams and counsels to the king and to the other leading leaders of the, of the empire. And so because of Daniel, 
back in the 6th century BC, they also had a close tie to Jewish heritage throughout their history. And so centuries of waiting, centuries of watching for the prophecies to come that had been prophesied back centuries before was part of what they were doing, part of what Daniel instituted, some scholars believe, into their brotherhood. And so they're watching and they're waiting, spending centuries doing this, and finally they see the sign, they see the star, and they set off on a journey And this would be a long journey, an arduous journey. Not only that, they are making this journey at a time when the Parthian Empire and the Romans were completely at odds with each other. And so they're moving deep into Roman territory, obviously being part of the Parthian Empire. It's a dangerous journey, but they make it anyway. And they bring these gifts. They bring gold, they bring frankincense, and they bring myrrh. And we can look at them literally and say, yes, these are physical gifts that were really important and valuable treasures in the Eastern world. They were traded equally with currency. But we can also look at them, as many scholars have, metaphorically, and say gold and frankincense and myrrh. We know what gold is. Frankincense is a spice that was used as an incense, typically in the temple. And myrrh was another spice that was developed into an ointment that was used primarily to embalm the bodies of the dead. Gold is what you would bring as a tribute to a king. Frankincense is what you send up to your God. And myrrh is what you have for a human being who is mortal and is going to die. And so metaphorically, we have them bringing the gifts that you would bring to a king, a god, and a human being. Kind of interesting. What I also think about is that they were bringing provision for Jesus as a human being, the gold. For Jesus as a spiritual man, the frankincense. And for Jesus, at the moment of his death, the transition between the two in the myrrh. At any rate, the way we can look at this is, is, is varied. But these gifts are precious. And that's what we're trying to get across. But what was the most precious gift that the Magi brought to Jesus? Of those? Of anything? See, for me and for my money... It was simply their presence. They brought themselves. All else is really incidental. If they didn't bring themselves, if they didn't reach out beyond their comfort zone, if they didn't move out into unknown territory, they never could have given any other gift. It was themselves that they brought. And if you think about it, all we have, the only thing that's truly ours, is our presence. It's our time Our time here is what we have. And where we choose to put our presence in that time is the greatest gift that we can ever give. Because we as human beings can only be in one place at one time. And where we choose to be means that it's the most important place to be of all the things that we could have chosen. And these magi chose Jesus. They chose to make this journey, to put their presence where it was so important. Jim and Della in the story... Jesus gave their greatest possessions, a watch, their hair, his own life on the cross. They gave their greatest possessions, but they never gave those possessions without their presence. Their presence was required. They didn't mail it in. They didn't drop it from 30,000 feet. They were there. It was intimate. The presence of the Magi is what gave value to all of the other gifts. 
that vulnerability, that presence. Think about who the Magi were. They were kingmakers. They were leaders of empire. They were the most learned men in their respective countries and, 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 and settings. But they were wise because they could still, with all that they had, with all of their trappings, they could still submit themselves, kneel down, become vulnerable and dependent on even an infant lying in a manger. You know how rare that is? For someone with that kind of power to humble themselves to that degree? This is the gift of the Magi. To see that we can still be vulnerable, that we can bring that vulnerable presence to bear. Jesus is described as lying in the manger in Luke, not in Matthew, but in Luke. He does exactly the same thing here. He is the king of the universe, and yet he comes as a helpless infant to destitute parents and lies in the manger, completely dependent, completely vulnerable. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus doesn't grow out of his vulnerability as he gets older. He grows into it. He grows into the vulnerability, into the humility. And he tells us that this is the only way that you will experience kingdom. This is the only way that you will experience the presence of my Father. Is if you can drop your viewpoint from the six feet, from the five feet, whatever you've got, down to the three feet again of the child. If you can do that, what you can see from three feet off the ground is unlike anything else that we can see from higher up. There's a change of viewpoint that has to take place. There is no kingdom without the changed vantage point. And you know what? There's no Christmas either. Christmas is about the interdependence between us and our families. Christmas is about submitting ourselves to the real meaning of what this is about. Christmas is a celebration of the vulnerable presence of our God as an infant lying in a manger. Think about that but you'll never see it until you bring your vulnerable presence right into his vulnerable presence. It's the way this works. We need a lower viewpoint. We need to get back down to three feet small because we can only see Christmas, we can only see kingdom from the standing height of a child or the kneeling height of a servant, which is exactly the same thing. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us. We can give ourselves the gift of the Magi, this vulnerable presence right here, right now. We don't have to wait for Christmas, but Christmas is a good time to remember what this is all about. Vulnerable presence. When we have achieved that, we can see Christmas as our heart really remembers it or as maybe it's never seen it before. Let's remember the gift of the Magi as we move into this last week before Christmas. Let's bring that vulnerable presence to everyone around us. As we prepare, as we get lost in all of the stress and all of the activities, if we can stop and we can come back and see those great men prostrating themselves before an infant and remember who we really are, this Christmas will be beautiful. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the approach of the celebration of your birth. Thank you for withholding absolutely nothing for our benefit. Your son, that you would send him the way you did to show us what perfect vulnerability looks like, to show us what presence is all about. Thank you, Father, for those gifts. Thank you for withholding nothing ever from us. As we move into this holiday season, Lord, we just ask that you would always be in the forefront of our minds and our hearts and never lose sight of you in everything that we do so that this holiday, this celebration, this Christmas, this new year will be infused with the presence of your Spirit. Teach us to be a humble people. Teach us to move our viewpoint down back to the ground where it belongs so we can see everything that the child sees and everything that the servant serves. We love you because you first loved us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.